while the Scions have busied themselves with asserting their position on the world stage, building a model military upon which they hope to lighten the way for united Eorzea, there are rumblings just outside the Rising Stones pointed towards the glimmering peak known as the Crystal Tower. A mysterious figure has been skulking around the Seventh Heaven for weeks, and he's finally managed to grab the attention of our heroes, setting them on an adventure that may color their history more than they realize. I'm Nero. And I'm Jane. And this is Radio Free Heidelin. Yes, welcome back everybody. It's been a couple of weeks. Uh, sickness and other things have sort of gotten in the way just to touch, but we're back, and... We're here to crack into maybe the most significant event in Final Fantasy XIV from a foundational perspective, the Crystal Tower Raids. Now, those of you playing A Realm Reborn for the first time might wonder why these raids are story required. They are the only alliance raids required for story progress. No other alliance raids in the future uh do that and to that i ha i say no reason yeah no reason don't even don't even worry about it surely there's there's no uh significant characters or lore or plot elements don't worry about it so what is the crystal tower well it's a really big rock but more than that it is a location just outside of mordona it is this gigantic spire of elegant technology that has kind of uh, that was un recently uncovered by the calamity. It used to be buried deep beneath the earth, but with all of the explosions from Bahamut, um, it has risen again. Yes, you know, typically when a giant moon impacts a planet, it's gonna upheaval, uh, you know, some of the earth a little bit here. So now that the crystal tower is here. There are some enterprising individuals who want to take a look at it, and one such individual has uh, been kind of sneaking around outside the the Rising Stones for the past several weeks. Um, a difficult to discern individual wearing a mask. Who could it possibly be? It's very tall, blonde, wearing something that obscures his eyes and forehead. I don't know who it could be. But yeah, the, 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 uh, what, what is he labeled as? Like, um, fucking obvious looking man or something, something like that. Ostentatious fellow. Yeah, like ostentatious man. Uh, and he sort of directs you to head over to the Crystal Tower because there's some interesting stuff going on. Now, the, uh, the Crystal Tower is being excavated currently by a group called the Sons of Saint Koinak, who are, a, a specific group of Charlian scholars who study the, the lost civilization of Alag. Now, interestingly enough, if you, like me, played Summoner, you've already met Rambros and the Sons because they are involved in the uh, level 45 and level 50 Summoner questline. Oh, really? That's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, he uh, helps you find your Summoner gear because, of course, Summoners are Alagan. Interesting. It's an Alagan art. I did not know that. I've never played Summoner. So, before we truly get started here, it's worth describing what an alliance raid is, because this is our first time talking about an alliance raid. It is the sort of third tier of content. You, know, you have your four-person dungeons, your eight-person trials. These are 24-person, basically mega dungeons. 
um, with three teams of eight, each working together to achieve a goal. Yes, and that if that sounds to you like perhaps that's a little bit of a cluster-style situation, um, you would be right. However, they're usually pretty fun. I quite like them, and I quite like most of the Crystal Tower raids as well. Um, so you, you kind of you you kind of head over to the Crystal Tower and meet up with Rambros, who of course is uh, always happy to have the fucking hero of Eorzea help help out with his expedition. But additionally, someone else is there helping out with the uh, with the excavation, and that is of course our good friend Sid Garland. Yes, Sid Garland is here, and. He is, I, I would say, one of the sort of principal characters of the Crystal Tower Raids. He is the guy who's here to basically figure out how to get inside this building, because it's not as simple as just walking up the stairs, right? Yes. There, this, is, this isn't just a tower. This is an entire complex. There's a big lead-up. There's these huge buildings outside. Uh, the whole thing is on this massive plinth that seems to be, like, a couple of miles big in each direction. And it's guarded by not just apparently anti-air defenses, but four separate gigantic force fields in an area they call the Eight Sentinels because, of course, there are eight funny little statues that represent where the uh, big kill field is that if you walk into it, you evaporate into dust. It's worth noting that uh, this first section, the, the, the Crystal Tower as a whole, but especially this first uh, segment of content is... All heavily inspired by Final Fantasy III. The Crystal Tower is a dungeon from Final Fantasy III. And similar to that, in Final Fantasy III, you bypass its defenses with uh, fangs fashioned out of crystals. And as well, the Labyrinth of the Ancients is, I believe, a, a pretty straight adaptation of a dungeon involved in that as well. I've, I don't have the... Uh, I don't have the page up in front of me, but it is, um, here it is. It's the, it's the Ancient's Maze, is what the, the Labyrinth of the Ancients instance is based on. Interesting, interesting. Um, but to touch on those fangs here, so to get past these four special color-coded kill fields, uh, you need to find some special ether-aspected crystals, one for each of the, like, aspects of these force fields, and... This segment is very interesting because at the time of implementation, when when these quests were first made, flying wasn't real. You couldn't fly anywhere. This is significant because now this is a busy work quest that takes you about maybe 45 minutes to complete. But this is a busy work quest that requires you to go into the heart of all four myriad tribe strongholds to like the dead center of them to fight a guy. And that's not easy to do <laughs> if you're on foot. Yeah, thankfully these days we have the technology of flight, so it's marginally less annoying, but it's still kind of annoying. Yeah, so the thing about the very beginning of the Crystal Tower is that there's a, quite a lot of lead up to actually getting into the tower uh, and just to sort of brush past a lot of things you get Biggs and Wedge in on this as well 
because uh, apparently they were not. Sid is doing this on his own. He didn't. He didn't actually go and grab them. They were doing an unrelated project. But I mean, if the boss is doing something, you gotta you gotta go see what's up with that. It's true. It's important. And additionally, you meet a another uh, another person who is involved in the dig, and that is Grahatia, one of the students of Baldesian recently evaporated students of Baldessian, <laughs> who is a specifically Allegan scholar, and he's got an anime eye. He does. He has he has a chuny eye. He's trying really hard to make you think that he's cool. He's trying so hard. Like, okay, part of the thing you have to do is get a bunch of, like, sand to grind the special crystals down into these fangs, and at one point you have to go into... The Twelves would, and you have to go find some stuff. And he's like this, oh, mysterious voice, like, calling to you from the bushes. And, you know, and he and he's like, oh, adventurer, you're too late for this one. Why don't we turn into a race? Can you get can you get the other sand in time? And, you know, it's this whole thing. And he's like, oh, I'm very impressed with all of your, with, with your, with your skills. Perhaps you are a hero after all. Ooh. And then, and then you finally meet him and he's kind of a dork. He's kind of just a big dork. Yeah. And then it becomes clear as things go on. So obviously once you have all this together, you can't really call yourselves the Sons of St. Koinak. There's like five different groups involved at this point. You've got the Scions, you've got Garland Ironworks, you've got the Sons, and you've got the Students of Baldesian. So that's like, it's a lot of guys involved on this project. So Graha suggests that you uh, get a new name to, to represent this sort of collaborative effort. And he settles on... <sighs> this name is not exactly... Uh, it's not a snappy name. It is the Nominated Observers of Artifacts Historical, which sounds like a Hamilton lyric. A little bit, a little bit, but it's okay because it abbreviates to Noah. Um, and like most scientists, um, he has worked his ass off to make an acronym that is representative either of a cool thing that he likes or a thing that is relevant to his area of study, or both. In this case, it is both. It's uh, the name of an elegant archmagus. So, yeah, uh, he, he really fits the stereotype of, like, huge nerd-ass scientist, and it's it's pretty great. Yeah, and he is, he's all ready to explore this labyrinth, but Rambrose is like, hey, uh, you are here as an advisor, and you are, like, my research guy. Why don't we let the hero of Eorzea uh, explore the gigantic evil labyrinth. Because the thing is, the thing is about the Crystal Tower, it's been here dormant for a thousand years. It is no longer dormant. No, it is It is not dormant at all, uh, as you find out quite quickly when you go into the labyrinth here. Um, and Sid, Sid makes a good point when, you know, Graha is making big puppy dog eyes like, oh, can I please go into the big scary dungeon? I promise I'll be good. It's like, no. They built anti-air defenses and four giant kill-you barriers, and that's just the front door. Like, surely the actual dungeon portion is going to be slightly more hazardous than that, and you are simply a catboy with a bow and arrow, and you're good at it, but you need a little bit more than, than chutzpah to, like you know, get through that sort of an ordeal, I think. 
So without further ado, let's talk about the first uh, instance in the Crystal Tower raid series, that being the level 50 alliance raid, the Labyrinth of the Ancients. So, this is the first Alliance raid, um, and there's a lot of things that are unique about it. One of the most unique things about it is that it's a disaster. Yeah, it's... This is this is genuinely one of the, like... This is one of the pieces of content that I think might be in the most need of an overhaul not because it is explicitly bad but because it is genuinely so all over the place um it's it's really hard to discern what is going on if you're not already familiar with it i think yeah so here's the thing about alliance raids and how they were designing them previously right so the three alliances have you participate in raid-wide mechanics that require different alliances to do something different. It, this differs between alliance raids. Some of them don't really have any of those. Some of them are fairly straightforward. Uh, others do have stuff where you have to like know what your role is. And the thing with that Labyrinth of the Agents is that basically every single encounter has a mechanic that is alliance like specific which can be really confusing for new players yes it super can um and i wouldn't even call them particularly complicated typically but if you're unfamiliar with what you're supposed to be doing there's not a lot of necessarily clear direction on on display here or there there is in certain areas and there isn't in others um a good example of this is so so the first main sort of thrust of this is you go through and you have to just fight a bunch of really weird pulls and there's a bone dragon you're supposed to drag that dragon to the front of the to to the north of the arena it's yeah i I actually think the the bone dragon is a very good illustration of what's going on with the boss designs because it's the first boss fight so the way the bone dragon works if you haven't played for some reason you're listening to this podcast is the bone dragon you have to deplete its health bar like three times or something. And while it's depleted, it spawns these skeletons of like on the center of the platform of the boss arena. Now, a- a- some people have to fight the dragon. Other people have to make sure to kill the skeletons because every time the skeleton rejoins the bone dragon, a huge amount of raid-wide damage happens. And if all of the skeletons rejoin the bone dragon, everyone dies. Yeah, yeah. And this is sort of indicative, I think, of like the general design of the bosses here. There's there's usually a very dangerous ad component and a sort of a, a boss that you need to manage in a very specific way. And that's basically every single 
boss in all three of the Crystal Tower raids. Um, there's like, uh, there's another segment in here that I think is, is also like, tends to be very confusing and people typically don't do it properly. Um, and this isn't necessarily, I think the fault of, of players so much as it's a fault of like decent communication, um, on what the expectation of the player is in this. Uh, and th- there's a bit where you have to cross like these bridges and on these bridges there are uh three chained up like like stasis giant atmoses right and the way this functions is that each alliance gets their own little bridge they have to be on and four people need to stand on this little octagonal thing to unlock one of the Atmos is on one of the other bridges. So basically four people have to stand on a spot and not do anything, and then four people have to attack a thing. And the problem with this is that people tend to get fairly impatient, and there's also an ad component um, where people will feel like a need to walk off the platform and take care of ads. And it makes this segment take dramatically longer than it has any right to, just because I think it is like... I think it's very poorly designed here. I think that the way, if, if you were going to do this concept, I think you would want to do it so that the platform that unlocks the other guys was close enough to your guy that as a range DPS or as a healer, you were able to reach your targets while still being able to stand on the octagon. And as it stands now, you're just barely out of range. So if you want to participate in any meaningful way, you have to walk off of it. And it's just it's just clumsy. It's it's a very like growing pains style decision, I think. Functionally almost everything is centered on having a, at least one tank who knows what they're doing, which is thankfully usually the case. Um one weird thing that you have to like juggle with alliance raids is that like there's usually one main tank for the whole alliance um or like for the whole raid and then two off tanks because as with a certain boss in the third of these raids uh sometimes if you have tanks fighting for aggro it can result in a lot of people dying because the boss spins and sometimes the boss has a really big eye beam that hurts a lot yeah you don't want to spin the boss rule number one don't fucking spin the boss do not spin the boss there's there's other stuff going on in the labyrinth as well i like the design okay i i do want to talk before we before we get into the rest of the 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 sort of bosses here because there's, there's like two more to talk about um i think the design of it is kind of cool i like the idea of it feeling somewhat like a labyrinth where you have to go to like three separate wings and and open up this like big like atlantis the lost empire style like floaty thing um, so that you can actually uh, get this platform that goes up to the uh, the entrance to the Crystal Tower. Like, I think that's pretty cool. I think it's pretty neat. And the the actual area here is you would expect it to be themed more on the Crystal Tower itself, where you've got a lot of like blues and a lot of like standing out crystal like crystalline things but actually there's there's a fair fairly minimal amount of that here it's mostly 
uh, hard stone, a lot of lava, a lot of oranges, and I think, like, from a visual standpoint, it's kind of unique. Um, I think it looks quite nice. So, yeah, the, the third boss is King Behemoth. He drops rocks on you. But don't worry, the rocks are good. You want the rocks. The rocks are healthy. The rocks are very healthy because you need to be able to stand behind those rocks when he calls down a giant meteor. But watch out, there's big robots who hate the rocks and they hate you. Yes, the Iron Giant shows up and he's mad, he's pissed off, uh, and he wants to break those rocks. So you have to take care of the Iron Giant, once again following the general design trend here. And it's okay. Uh, This is like a fine fight. I think that it's very funny. It it tries to fake you out because you get like a post-boss like tiny cut scene of it dying. But this is, you know, it's it's, it's a fake out letting you know that, oh wait, actually now just the main thing is unlocked. You get to go upstairs and there's a big golden man with a scimitar and he does a lion's roar for some reason. This is Phlegaton named after one of the rivers of the underworld. I believe that's the river of fire, if I remember correctly, the Phlegaton. Yes, and also um, apparently a hero of the Allegan Revolution, as we find out shortly. Yes, so what what's important here, what we learn that's important here is that one, tower's back on for real, all of the defenses are active, that's bad. Two, uh, the tower is is like full of these recreations of the Algon heroes of Eld to to skip ahead to a more general summarization of what's going on with the Crystal Tower the Crystal Tower was basically like a battery like a like a gigantic power plant almost it was um it was created to absorb energy from the sun and as a result during the the golden age of Alag it, it sort of stood as like a, a a shining symbol of the empire right perhaps uh, as one might call it a beacon of hope for mankind but empires wane and 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 become decadent as Alag did as well but there was one man who decided to do something about that his name was Amon um he what is his he's a technologist that's his title he was a technologist and so he decided that the only thing that could bring alag back to its former glory is its founder emperor zandi now at this point zande had been dead for like fucking a thousand like 500 years or something it'd been a long time it'd been a very very long time but the alligans are the most advanced civilization of Eorzea. They figured out cloning. That's big. That's a that's a big it's gonna come up big. We learned that the Allegans were constantly cloning everybody. Yes, not just cloning, but augmenting the clones, making them bigger, better, faster, stronger, etc. etc. And so uh Zan the, the newly resurrected Zandi took control of the of the of the Allegan Empire and sort of resumed his his conquests um, but quickly things began getting out of hand. Dalamud supposedly was created to siphon even more power directly into the Crystal Tower to fuel the engine of conquest. However, this ended very badly. Uh, Dalamud put so much power into the the tower that it caused a gargantuan earthquake. Uh, which ended up being the fourth umbral calamity. Yes, the earth aspected calamity, and it 
sunk the entire tower into the earth. It got completely buried, and uh, as a result, the Allegan Empire kind of collapsed. Um, its major cities uh, th- thrown into disrepair, people scattered to the winds, etc., etc. Not really a fun time, I could imagine. May I ask, how do we know all of this? Well, there's two sources. One of them are a pair of, of uh, siblings named Une and Doga who show up with bright red eyes in elegant armor and say that they were just sent by the students of Baldesian. And everyone just sort of accepts that, despite the fact that everyone knows by now that uh, the, the Isle of Val fucking exploded. Well, I wouldn't say they accept it. Everyone's like, hey, we don't we super don't believe you but we'll like let you hang out for now but we're definitely gonna look into this of course as it turns out they are not scholars sent from the charlian they are clones of people from the allegan royal family a thousand years ago because the thing about the crystal tower it is entirely controlled by royal allegan blood um, it was created by the Allegan Royals, and it will it can only be piloted, so to speak, by Allegan royalty. And so they're sort of needed to stop what's coming. Because what is coming? What? Why is the tower reawakening again after all of this time? What was Zandi doing? Bad stuff. Bad stuff. We'll learn about that shortly. But it's important to note that Une and Doga exist to be human keys and we're told this because um while you know we're all hanging out talking to uh graha and sid and the boys and uh you know these two are unlocking the secret second door to the inside of the tower here um nero shows up uh mr tolskevo saunters in and everybody's like hey the fuck are you doing here man and he's like ah you know just wandered in just, just just passing through uh happen to know a few things for example these two are clones um he sort of blows their whole cover and uh he he also notes that they are basically just tools like the uh it's not practical from like a like an organizational standpoint from an infrastructural standpoint to make it so that the big power plant that runs everything and is also the seat of power of your government if you as the king have to open the door anytime somebody wants to come in, that's inconvenient. No, you need keys. So they made a bunch of clones of people with royal blood so they could literally just be carted around like keys uh, to open this big front door with, uh, which is very funny. So yeah, they, they, they opened this front door with basically zero effort, and Nero, <laughs> Nero just assigns himself to the group, he just starts following them. To to which Sid is like, bro, are you seriously just going to follow us around now? And he just replies, yeah. There's a lot of really good bits in the background for a lot of cutscenes where you see uh, Nero and Sid arguing in the background. You see Nero wandering around with his little fucking wrist thing that shows him where all of the elegant energies are. Because, of course, the reason he's here is obviously because he's he's sensing a new power source, something that's even more powerful than the Ultima weapon. Um, and you know that boy loves him some elegant technology. He does. It's really his his bread and butter here. 
He wants the coolest, most powerful toys in the whole world, and by God, he's gonna use his fucking ex-husband to go get them. So he he decides he's gonna tag along with Noah and just inject himself into this whole thing, to which everyone just kind of groans at his shit and lets him come along, because nobody wants to fight him, like... Seems 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 like a waste of energy, frankly. It is uh, it is interesting to talk briefly about Nier here because he's one of the. So the thing about alliance raids that I've always liked is that often you they will they will heavily feature characters who don't often get a spotlight in the main story. Specifically, starting from this, Sid and the Ironworks boys are almost always in either the alliance raids or the normal raids. Um, they will briefly show up in the main story from time to time, usually to give you some kind of cool new machine. But they live in the raids, and this is the, the kind of the the, the genesis of, of all of that. Now, it's important to note that Nero, he didn't go back to Garlemald because all of his other comrades and his commander are fucking dead. Uh, his legion was destroyed, and his mission ended in shambles and also technically Gaius was never supposed to do any of that shit anyway. So if he went back to Garlemald, he would probably be executed. However, do not mistake this as defection. No, no, no. Nero Tolskeva isn't defecting to Eorzea like Sid is, like Sid did. He Sid defected to Eorzea and dropped the Garlean honorific. He used to be Sid non Garland, but he he completely dropped it, as most like Garlean defectors do. Since Nero's not doing that, he's he's keeping that toll right in there, snuggle snuggle right in there. Oh yeah, no Nero, Mister Mister Tolskava here. He is not ashamed of being a Garlean. He is not ashamed of his participation in the Imperial War Machine. Um, he's just entirely self-motivated, right? Like, the reason he doesn't go back to Garlemald beyond the whole getting executed thing isn't because, like, he doesn't like Garlemald. It's because Garlemald for him is a means to an end. He wants one thing and one thing only he wants to be the smartest most cool most powerful engineer that has ever lived he wants to outdo all of the alligans and by god he wants to outdo sid fucking garland it's i i really like nero tolskeva he is like you know i like a lot of characters in this game but he is definitely up there for me he is a nasty little bitch who loves drama and tries really hard to to pretend he does not care about Sid. He doesn't care what Sid thinks about him. He doesn't care what Sid's doing. He's he doesn't care about any of that. Trust me, bro. He doesn't he doesn't care. He just don't care. The fact that he keeps following Sid around is completely separate. It's not indicative of anything at all not not of anything don't think about it it's fine and i've always enjoyed characters like him who are these like they you know the classic sort of vegeta arc right oh yeah for sure he's such a vegeta where you have a guy who used to be like your enemy and he is technically on your side however he hasn't changed he hasn't really redeemed himself he has no interest in doing so he's just kind of there now 
And that is always so fun. I love when there's just a shitty guy who is is kind of forcing himself onto the group dynamic for for shitty personal reasons. That's a very fun character to have in a group. Oh yeah, and he's always a blast. Like he like him doing this stupid shit is is awesome. And it only gets better uh, the more times he does it. He does it many times in this story as as time goes on. And he becomes purple later. He becomes purple, which is one of the funniest things that has ever happened in this video game. Yeah, he's got a he's got a sort of grimace situation, but we'll get to that shortly. Um in the meantime, so you know, we 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 get into the actual tower itself here and uh at this point once you know the gang here knows kind of the full story that you know emperor zandy is still chilling up on his big chair and he fully intends to use the power of the tower to uh re-established alag and and then conquer the whole world and all kinds of shit uh they're like okay so before we were like maybe we seal off the tower but now we're like we're sealing off the fucking tower yeah so to that end you and graha this time get ready to uh climb the main body of the crystal tower the actual physical spire which is called circus tower with a sys not not like a clown there is a clown in there but that's it's tangential so circus tower is um it's it's funny circus tower is basically the most common alliance raid you'll ever roll on alliance raid roulette if you do it because it is short and easy it is. It's short and easy, and it's my personal favorite. And not because of those two reasons, necessarily. It's the atmosphere, right? Circus Tower, to me, is the Crystal Tower. And I guess, technically, that is just literally true. That is literal. That is literally true, yes. It is indeed the Crystal Tower. It is the Crystal Tower portion of the Crystal Tower, and it's it, it oozes atmosphere. Like, it's it's awesome like the environment design is so cool you are you're actually just climbing the tower up the stairs like the whole way um like you're going up this big circular spiral staircase that that you are are given this this impression that it's going up and up almost infinitely and you have to fight like the the actual fights themselves i wouldn't call like especially stand out for the most part like the mob pulls are kind of grab bag like pick and mix sort of situations just a bunch of random shit that's just been thrown out of the allegan cloning vats at you and you you fight your way through that there's a big robot that is very forgettable he has mechanics nobody does them um 
the the really cool fight to me the fight that i think is is the most interesting is the amon fight there's there's a point where you you're almost to the very top of the tower and suddenly the stairs have a big gold set of double doors on them for no reason and there's a big red carpet and you go up this red carpet into a big classical style theater arrangement like there's red curtains everywhere and there's like spectator booths and you know audience seating around and there's a big funny clown skeleton man with a big cape and a funny hat with a big feather in it and he's here to make sure that you don't get to the good emperor zandy amon has a few funny mechanics that i think are pretty cool so uh at certain points he will spawn these like blobs in the corner of the arena and, and they are accompanied by a spotlight and like a noise to let you know that they're coming because what they do if they reach Amon at the center of the arena, uh, they will turn somebody randomly into a frog. Yay, it's beautiful. Like, once again, the the general, like, blueprint, right? There is an ad that is important to take care of, some ads that aren't important to take care of, and a big guy who has to be managed very carefully. Um, there's also a bit he does where he turns, like, I think three or four people um, into big ice cubes, and uh, you have to stand behind them because he does a big uh, big AoE attack called Curtain Call, and if you are not behind one of these, you are immediately killed, just just period, you're dead. And there are two, unlike, unlike the Behemoth fight, there aren't any ads that can destroy the ice. Instead... What can destroy the ice is if one of your frogified friends accidentally uses the fire breath attack that they have access to in the frog form. Wait, you have access to a fire breath attack? I've never gotten turned into a frog on that fight. <laughs> oh, you've never gotten... Yeah, so... That's hilarious. As a frog, you can breathe fire. Um, and if you breathe fire on the ice, uh, it melts. So... I don't think I've ever seen anybody do that. Most people know that uh, you don't want to do that. And plus, like... It's, it's to fight. There, there's a second set of ads. They're big, weird snake things named Kumkums or whatever the fuck. The thing you're supposed to do with them is shrink them with purple orbs. Uh, a common theme uh, of orbs in, in all of these fights. But yeah, the the Amon fight is fun. It's flashy. He's got cool looking attacks. His design is great. He's got this, you know, it's, it's like this big, elaborate theater outfit with the, the, the sort of... It's not even really a Venetian mask. It's, it's like a half mask. And then on the bottom of it, extending down, are these, like, beads that cover the rest of his face. Yeah, it's kind of awesome. Like, I, I I love the look of this thing. But, uh, but yes, you do, you do, in fact, defeat Amon. And he goes, oh, Emperor Zandi, I couldn't protect you. No. And as he, like, melts into a puddle. And you run up the stairs and enter the boss arena for the, the final boss of this area, Emperor Zandi himself. It's not a lot, mechanically, that Zandi has to talk about. He's got a few uh, notable instances of, of things popping up. He's got a DPS check. I don't think we've had any of those before. Um, there are instances where he, he like teleports back to his throne and spawns, uh, he starts dropping like a fucking meteor on you and spawns these like orbs that you have to kill to stop the meteor. He's got this weird attack. That's a stack up 
followed by a ground pound that you have to stay on these like the these hovering bits that he creates with the stack up to dodge or else you die instantly and then the people who originally targeted with the stack up get aoe's dropped on them afterwards it's like the it's the kind of the big uh the big like mechanics check of the zandy fight and i i think that's kind of interesting but other than that it's a fairly straightforward fight i want to mention all of the music in the crystal tower raid series are rearrangements of pieces from final fantasy 3 yes and they all go extremely hard by the way yes they're great rearrangements all of them are rearrangements of battle themes from the crystal tower um and specifically some bosses have their own unique uh, boss theme. One of them is, is, is Zandi. So uh, Phlegathon, Zandi, and Cerberus all have a rearranged version of the of the Battle 2 theme from Final Fantasy III as their battle theme. And then the final boss of this whole thing also has its own unique battle theme. And it's, it's just, I, I quite like the, uh, the Crystal Towers music. It's very classy is what I would say. It's like very classic Final Fantasy feeling. Yeah, and I would say on the whole, the Crystal Tower just feels kind of like a classic Final Fantasy style situation. It's got a very, it's a very self-contained thing, sort of. And it's very like, it's very straightforward. Uh, I wouldn't say that this is a particularly complicated plot line, but it is one that I think um, does well with its with its simplicity i think that it, it, it's good that it is more simple uh than a lot of the the other sort of comparable pieces of content so after you defeat zandy you may think well the show's over we can lock the tower down wrong oh yeah it was so wrong here's the thing everyone believed that zandy was going to use the tower to launch uh, a, a land invasion and recreate the Allegan Empire. No, that's not quite it. <laughs> so, here's the thing. When Zandi was brought back by Amon, he remembered what being dead was like. And being dead sucks. And this sort of caused, like, a horrifying existential crisis that ate away at him and as a result all of that ambition for conquests because you know, there's there's a cutscene there's a there's an echo vision you get of zandy on his throne where he is he's musing that like yeah i could fucking conquer the world and 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 gain all of the wealth and power i want but like what what is the fucking point if i know what's at the end like why would i bother so instead, he has decided that everyone should share this fate, and he has made a pact with an extremely powerful void scent named the Cloud of Darkness. Yes, and the pact essentially reads, listen, you don't kill me until everybody else is dead first. We're, I'm going to let you come in and kill literally everyone in the whole world, and, and then I'll, and then you can, you can have me. And she's like, all right, sick, sign me the fuck up. Yes, so the, the, basically he is going to open a gigantic void gate and let darkness consume the world. Yeah, which is 
pretty bad. Also, incidentally, apparently he uh, so so it was thought that the fourth umbral calamity uh Dalamud dumping all of its energy into the crystal tower and causing the earthquake it was believed that that was an accident it was not an accident zandi personally ordered that to happen because there was actually a revolution taking place you know people had kind of gotten fed up with new zandy's whole shtick by that point and people were starting to get the the wind that hey maybe something really horrible is about to happen so everyone tries to bust down the front door of the crystal tower to which he says okay well i'm burying you all under 700 billion pounds of earth now so at this point une and doga are like well we need to close the we need to try and seal the covenant because uh, it's it's tied to the royal blood. Therefore, they're the only ones who might be able to do it. They instead get snatched by the darkness. And additionally, so does Nero because he, he has joined you at the summit of the Crystal Tower because this is where all of the crazy energy readings are happening because there's a void gate at the top of the Crystal Tower. Um... So he tries to uh, save, I believe it's Une, not out of the kindness of his heart, but because, you know, he needs the he needs the twins to, like, control the tower. He needs the keys to drive the car. Um, So he's trying to save them. He gets dragged into the void gate as well, which is generally bad for your health, uh, which is kind of where the second stage of the raid series ends now. To continue on with discussing the characters you're going to focus in this, I want to talk about Sid Garland. Yes, Sid is a very important character here. He is, him and Nero sort of form a uh, a duet, if you will. So obviously, Sid has had plenty of playtime in Aeror proper. He's kind of the main character of that whole expansion. Um, but here, you get a little bit more about his personal philosophy, right? Because... He is here to see if if Allegan technology can like help better the world. He he is all the, the motto of the Ironworks is freedom through technology. And he is, you know, we know that he left Garlemald because he was disgusted by its it, its imperial activities and he refused to be like a weapons manufacturer. And so he decided instead to, to share Magitech with the people of Eorzea. Now, the thing about Allegan technology is that like 90% of it is evil and could destroy the world. One is one of it. All, some of it almost did already twice, which Sid is uh quick to remind uh, Biggs and Wedge of when they start getting a little bit too into the crystal tower here. And he he forms this very opposing viewpoint to Nero in a lot of ways. Like Nero is this self-centered, ambitious man who wants to not to use the glory of Alag to boost his own glory, to to take what they've learned and do even more uh, than they ever could have dreamed of doing. Um, Sid, by contrast, is really uninterested in his own ambition and legacy in that way. He is extremely motivated by helping other people, which is why he is extremely cautious, and despite the fact that he has a lot of curiosity as a scientist to want to explore 
this Allegan ruin and figure out how all of it ticks, he is more than anything primarily concerned with making sure that it can't ever hurt anybody again. Yes, and we'll talk a bit about how this all ends, but uh, I think, you know, his, his sort of view is he wants to create a brighter future. That is ultimately what his goal is. It doesn't matter if he isn't there to see it or even if he is like remembered at all. He just wants the world to be a better place when he leaves it than when he found it, right? And ultimately the ending of the Crystal Tower is sort of all about that of like, you know, you you strive forward. Um and I you know, Sid is just he's he's just a cool guy to have around. We will we will see a lot more of his like ethos about technology and relationships as as things go on yes um but for now he is he is uh now saddled with a very specific task as is uh the rest of you which is damn we got to figure out how to open that void gate again uh so we can rescue our friends and also stop the world from ending yeah so you know pretty quickly you you begin to uh to to figure out what you're gonna do here and i mean everyone is like hey listen they're probably fucking dead because they got dragged into the void maybe une and doga aren't because of the covenant but like nero's for sure super dead um but you gotta try you know there's really no alternate course of action you have to go into the void and and slap around the cloud of darkness which without much there's not a whole lot of lead up to the third one there's there's more lead up to the other two um raids but the third one you kind of just like we gotta we gotta we gotta go we gotta hustle yeah i mean time is of the essence here so uh without further ado that's gonna be as we as we cross the threshold that all of the uh, the the energy has been pumped into via our our good friends uh, Biggs and Wedge, uh, we hop through the gate into the world of darkness. So I quite like the world of darkness. I know you don't like the world of darkness, but I, (sighs) I like looking at it. I think it is a, it's a, uh, basically the world of darkness looks like a black light poster version of Mount Olympus. Yes. There are these huge towering temples with pillars and, and glowing crystals that are all green and purple 
and 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 orange and red and ooh and i i just love the way that all of the enemies look the the colors i don't know i i just like i'm i'm a big sucker for that kind of thing but the world uh, the world of darkness is probably the, it's definitely the hardest one out of all of these it's not quite as arcane as the labyrinth of the ancients is but it does require a lot of coordination um which can result in some very long runs in certain cases yeah like okay i will never contest the fact that the world of darkness looks really good okay i will say the 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 final boss like arena the the actual place you fight the cloud of darkness in is pretty underwhelming but for the most part i think the world of darkness looks awesome it does look like a big black light poster it's really cool no no faults on that one the enemy design the boss design it's cool the umbrage i take with it is that its mechanics are just esoteric enough that it's very difficult to get through a run of the world of darkness without wiping like multiple times to uh the big eyeball to cerberus uh to the dragon um or all three. The actual Cloud of Darkness is, is hilariously the easiest fight here. The other three have a lot of mechanics. And let's start with talking about the eyeball. Because the eyeball is usually the one that most people fuck up. This, so yeah, the, this is the one that if you if you wipe once to this guy, you're probably going to be here a while. He is, he is the harbinger of things to come. This thing's name is Angramanu. And he's got a lot going on. First of all, he is the thing I alluded to earlier with the big laser. Don't spin him. Uh, it will murder the fuck out of anyone who isn't a tank. Number two. So there, he's this has a crazy amount of mechanics for an ARR fight. This is like almost current shit with regards to like how much is happening in this fight. So number one. There's a, there's a thing where he makes the floor two-toned, and he gives you a status effect. And you have to remember what status effect you have for the next time he does the two-toned floor thing, or you die if you are standing on the incorrect color. You have to go to the opposite color the second time. Um, secondly, he has a gaze attack, which is, of course, the thing where if you're looking at him, he inflicts a debuff on you. And specifically, the debuff he inflicts on you is Doom. And the only way to remove this doom is to stand on a glowing circle. Yes, yeah, so a glowing circle that half the time you will run to, and ooh, just a little bit too late, it uh, fucking goes to one of the other glowing circles, and you don't have enough time to get to the other one, and you die. Um, another thing he does is he has two discrete special, like, tether attack thingies. This one... Okay, so here's the thing. This is actually easier than it may seem. It's just that they, they it doesn't tell you what's happening. So, there, there are two big central tether attacks. Level 100 Flare, which is the red one, and level 150 Death, which is the purple one. Now, Flare will tether players to one player that is targeted on the AoE. Both of them will. Uh, the flare kills anyone in the area if the amount of tethered players is even and death kills everyone in the area if the amount of tethered players is multiples of three is that how that fucking works yes are you choking so, so if it's red basically it's actually much easier if it's red just leave the circle 
because one is an odd number. So the guy will, I'm pretty sure the guy will be fine if you just leave. I think the safest option for both of these is just exit the circle. Don't participate in the mechanic because if you fuck it up, a lot of people will die. But yeah, that is how the nobody knows how those tethers function because it's insane. But yes, level 150 death kills everyone in the tether if it's a multiple of three. I thought it was just like leave if it's red or go in if it's purple. Nope. Oh my god. And he's got one more fucking mechanic too. We're not done. Like like I said, this guy is No, there's two more. There's two more fucked up mechanics. There's an ad phase. He spawns guys that have fucking gaze attacks and AoEs and you gotta kill them. And the last mechanic that he has is that he spawns a bunch of hourglasses along the rim of the arena. And uh, the the fucking the fucking arena starts lighting up like it's a like it's the fucking wheel of fortune. Um, what do you have to do here? Is you have to kill all of the hourglasses so that the the wheel stops spinning on an empty space and everyone can get out of it. Because if you don't kill all of the hourglasses, guess what happens? Oh, uh, does everyone die? That's right. Wahoo! What's my prize? Uh, continuing to fight Angra Menu. Yay. So that that is the first boss, and he is a gigantic clusterfuck. He requires a remarkable amount of coordination for a fight this early, and especially compared to any of the guys in Circus Tower or even Labyrinth of the Ancients. Like, I don't know. It's a lot to ask. It's a lot to ask of a bunch of players who are like level 52, and the hardest thing they've had to do so far is like, I guess, the ultimate weapon fight. <laughs> Which is not that bad. Continuing the trend of insane mechanics, the, ne- the next boss is the Five-Headed Dragon. No, not the one from Yu-Gi-Oh! It's a different one. The Five-Headed Dragon's fucked up, but not not that hard, but he's fucked up. He is much less complex than Anger Manu is. So, the thing with Five-Headed Dragon that has to be dealt with immediately upon starting the fight is one of the tanks needs to pull him to the far side of the arena... Because he has a gigantic cleave attack that basically takes up half of the fucking arena if he's in the center of it. So anyone in front of him just takes huge amounts of damage. Yes, that's an extremely important thing that people sometimes forget. Another important thing is that there are like six ad phases and all of them do different random nonsense. And I don't think I even understand how half of it works. So he's it's actually fairly simple. So he spawns poison slimes at certain points. You just have to kill those before they get big. That's fine. There are he's got thunder markers that he can put on people and that is a stack up. Um there's like a there's like a bit where red firebirds appear tethered to you and you basically have to tag another player to get that off of you or else you'll just take constant damage. Yeah, and finally, uh, each of the five heads of the five-headed dragon. Oh, I'm not done. There's more. There's no. There's more mechanics. We, we, I only got through three of the heads. You see, so he he creates these ice puddles, which are like big AOEs that start growing and freeze anyone within them. And then there's heat wave, which just is just a big AOE like DOT attack. And then finally. There's fucking prominence, which is just another ad phase where a bunch of white orbs spawn. And I believe if you don't destroy all of the white orbs, a really big explosion happens. And then you get to the part where all of the five heads start charging up an attack and each becomes separately targetable, which yet again uh, causes a big explosion. (laughs) 
So kill those. And then after that, you're good, though. But yeah, well, it, it there's a lot to juggle in these fights. Thankfully, in the third fight, we trade complexity for extremely rigid grouping structures. Yes, and you'd think that would make it easier. <laughs> you'd think having very clear and explicit directions would make it much easier. However, you would be wrong. <laughs> the third fight is Cerberus, everyone's favorite doggy. Um, he does not have as many disparate like mechanics as the rest of the bosses do. However, he is definitely the deadliest one. Um, partway through the fight, Cerberus will because he's like tethered to the the gates of the underworld or whatever. He'll he will break his chains and his damage will fucking skyrocket, and so will his damage resistance. So basically, this is one of the only fights in any alliance raid where like each alliance has an extremely defined role going by alphabetical order. The main strategy for the Cerberus fight is is for Alliance A, they're the Ad Alliance. That means they fight the um the the plant that drops that 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 spawns in which attacks shrunken players. We'll get to that, don't worry. Um, they have the easiest job. You fight the ad. If you're in Alliance A and you're in the Cerberus fight, you're living, you're living, you're on, you're high on the hog. You're good. Alliance B has the most complex job because B stands for belly and their job is to get Vord. Yeah, they have to go stand. So Cerberus will spawn these like orbs that dump gastric juices onto the floor and you gotta go stand in that. And you, sh- you get you get really small, and then Cerberus eats you up and gobbles you up and puts you, puts <laughs> you in his belly. Uh, I, I do, with all seriousness, I think this is a very cool mechanic, and I really like this, especially for so early on, of like, you have to go into a separate area during the fight. That's cool. It is It is cool, and you have to go fight a bunch of, like, blobs inside of Cerberus or whatever. You just punch, it's like that fucking itchy and scratchy cartoon the fantasia parody where like itchy chops up all the fucking scratchies and they turn into dust and start destroying his internal organs <laughs> that's what's happening here basically and that that will stun him long enough for alliance c to do their job c stands for chains because they have to go and refetter cerberus so he will take damage and won't hit his enrage and kill everybody Yes, and and then it's important to note this fight does in fact have an enrage. So if you take too long fighting Cerberus, even if you do all the mechanics correctly, if you take too long, he'll break his chains again, um, but this time you can't put him back on, and he's going to get real strong real quick and kill you. Don't don't take too long. I think the Five-Headed Dragon also has an Enrage, but it rarely ever comes up. I've never seen it, certainly. I've seen Cerberus' Enrage plenty of times, though. And an Enrage, for those who are wondering, is just a colloquial term for... Basically, it is it is, it is is a DPS check, except the DPS check is the whole fight. If you fail to do enough damage at a certain point, some bosses have the ability to just kill everyone. Yeah, they get, they get dramatically stronger extremely fast, and then they just wipe out the whole... Uh, the whole raid which brings us finally to the final boss the cloud of darkness who has a really cool design and ultimately is a very easy fight yeah there are a similar amount of mechanics to the others they're just much easier to like wrangle than the others are yeah they're also much more pass fail i feel 
Yes. So one of one, the the one that always gets everyone is the uh, the faint beam where she follows someone around with the laser, and if they don't run fast enough, they just die. Yeah. There's like a like a trail of explosions that follow this person behind them. Um, her main thing is lasers. She likes lasers. Shoots lasers. She likes to vape. She likes to vape, but you but you can't let her vape because if she vapes too many of these these uh, you know fat clouds, she's gonna get uh super powerful and shoot the whole uh arena with like a bajillion tiny lasers and it kills everybody so you got to make sure that none of those those vape clouds uh get to her um other than that there is a there's a little split that you have to do at one point where you have to go to one of these three little octagonal arenas and kill a thing uh there's also during the vaping segments there is like between like four and like like 14 uh meteor circles that'll happen and you have to make sure that somebody is standing in those otherwise the whole raid takes damage um she'll also sort of teleport around at various points like she'll go to a different section of the arena and uh do a big laser so you have to make sure that you're paying attention and standing on the side um overall i would say that she is probably one of the easiest bosses um you don't even have to really do positioning necessarily because she's just kind of off the side of the arena it's it's very weird to me like i i think this happens reasonably often in content in this game where you'll have the the bosses leading up to the main event uh can often be much more complicated and more difficult than the the main event boss themselves I, I'm not sure why that ends up being a consistent problem. Oh, either. But she's done, except not really, because you can't kill a Voidsynth that strong, necessarily. But you do recover your friends. As we said, Nero is purple now. He is purple. He got he got a paper cut, and when he did, all the darkness got sucked into him. So he so basically what happened, as, as Une and Doga tell you, is that the cloud said, well, I can't, I can't kill you because of your royal blood, but that covenant has no sway over any of my other void scent. Yeah, just like, I can't kill you, but that guy, he can kill you. So she basically just put them in a box and sent, like, endless fucking waves of void scent at them. Um, Nero actually did fight to protect them, which is how he got so wounded and, and thus empurpled. And he, he, he says, of course, look, yeah, I'm because i need you because i wanted to fucking save my keys that's what i that's why i fought so 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 hard yeah obviously i don't care about you obviously i just care about the key aspect uh, you know so the, 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 everything is wrapping up very quickly now um because une and doga come to realization they need to end the covenant because without without like annulling it the the void gate will simply remain open um and and the cloud will continue to grow stronger and stronger until it's ready to once again invade uh the 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 realm so what they're going to do is they're going to give graha who has this alagan eye and as they reveal not only does he have blood of the blood of alag he literally has the royal blood of alag at some point implanted in his ancestry by Allegan scientists. And so they give him, they share their Allegan royal blood with him and he gets, both his eyes match now. He's no longer Chuni. He's, 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 um, 
Itachi. Holy shit, I couldn't remember his name. I think Sasuke also has two. Sh- I don't, look, I'm not. We're not the Naruto podcast. You can go listen to Konoha Crush for that. Um, so w- it's time to escape from the void, right? Which is what we're all trying to do every day. You know how it is. Um, there's only one real. There's only two. One real thing I want to talk about with this segment because Une and Doga they make their sacrifice. They stay behind to stop the cloud. Yeah, they they do a real like you're trapped in here with me style situation to the cloud. You and Graha, you know, leap through the void gates in time. But Nero, you know, he's 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 in purple. He's feeble. I like I do like the scene where like he stumbles and you know Graha's going to back to help him, but Nero's like, no, fuck off. If I'm gonna get out, I'm gonna get out on my own terms. If I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die on my own terms. I'm Nero Tolskeva. I'm nobody's bitch. I'm gonna be the smartest motherfucker in the world. I'm gonna surpass. Sid Garland and Alag, you just watch me. It's like, damn. He's he he's a real bitch, but you know what? I respect it. He's driven. Um, thankfully, he becomes unpurpled. Yeah, his 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 will his willpower plus apparently some shit that Une and Doga were doing to him, uh, breaks all of the purple off of him, and he gets like some strength back. And he runs to the void gate, but it's quickly shutting. And right as he jumps, it shuts seemingly. But then a hand juts out. The first time we did this, uh, the this raid, I believe it was fairly shortly after we had finished Shira season five. Yeah, it was not long. It was like a couple of weeks after that. And well, it's probably a few months because I believe the full free trial upgrade happened in like. October, I want to say. But when this... So... Okay. There's a thing with reaching through the void to grab onto someone, right? In Shira, there's a very famous scene where that happens, and you... I believe you're the one who made who made this reference to me the first time I was watching it. You're the one who who put that in my brain. Oh yes. I immediately I immediately noticed the fucking parallels. Because Sid reaches to the void and, and pulls Nero out and he says, You owe me. To which Nero replies, like hell I do, which is very, very funny. Like it's <sighs> those men are divorced and they love each other, but they're very divorced. Oh yes, no. That's it it is oh my god, it is such an extremely like those two scenes are basically identical. It's they're both scenes are even purple. That's right. They're both very purple. And of course, that means that means that through the transitive properties, this is a Nutena reference. Um so all all seemingly well it ends well we've we we've got the the covenant annulled the cloud is no longer trying to fucking bust down the doors of our dimension um well she's still trying she just can't do it anymore which is an important distinction yeah without the covenant and without the power of the crystal tower to reopen the void gate she's kind of stuck but there's one more character we have to talk about here there is a very important character a a character that we've sort of glossed over for the vast majority of this episode so far and his name is grahatia grahatia is introduced he's like the the new guy you hang out with in the raid series that's often what happens for alliance and uh regular raids you find a new guy to hang out with and typically that new guy meets some sort of horrible end but don't worry about that surely that won't happen here Grahatia, as we said, he is this, like, nerd-ass, elegant scholar who is desperately trying to look cool. And it's interesting, right? Because 
Um, and he's also trying to, he, he, the thing is he knows he, he is always talking about how, uh, like the heroes of, of his, of, of the stories of ally, he will never be able to live up to them. Right. And that he is always judging himself against them. And additionally, he, he wants to know why he has this eye. It's, 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 it's what drove him to, to study Alag in the first way. Cause his father told him that, you know, the the truth lies in Alag, and so he's like, "Well, I fuck, I better start start studying the Alagan Empire, I guess." Yeah. Also, he was bullied as a child for his chuny eye, yes. so uh, that also drove him to try and figure out why he has it. the The thing with him that I think is so interesting is that he was driven to learn about Alag, and Alag is, for all intents and purposes, a Rome analog. Um, this is functionally the Roman Empire, right? And like the Romans, um, most of their history is very, uh, what's a good way to put it? It's, it's bombastic and it is dramatized and you have these big larger than life heroes who, uh, often take uh, a lot of the, you know, the, the history under their wing and similar to the Greeks that inspired them. And, you you have that situation with Alag um, to the point that even in Alag's late era, it itself was cannibalizing its own stories, its own narrative, bringing literally bringing these heroes back from the dead in order to try and write what they perceived as a decadent and wayward society they felt if they'd simply returned to to their traditional roots if they simply got those heroes back they would be put back on on the correct path again and when you study that sort of a civilization you make that sort of the core interest you have your 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 field of expertise you're going to absorb some of that culture into yourself, some of that hero reverence, and Graha has that in spades. He is a character who is starstruck by heroes. He adores tales of heroism, and he makes that clear from your very first encounter with him. And interestingly, I find he is very reticent to see himself in that light he uh in in the end of of these these raids here he specifically downplays his own contributions very heavily he he refers to himself as simply the somebody who was just there and happened to be important because Une and Doga bestowed upon him the rem the last uh, drops of their royal blood like he does not feel like he really contributed but he wants to he wants to rise to the occasion to become this great hero like he sees you as the warrior of light. By the end of this, he feels that the warrior themselves is one of these great heroes, and he wants to live up to the expectation that you've put in front of him. And um, to that end, he has... There's one more... Th- oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, he has something he, he ends up wanting to do here at the end, and he has a funny speech about it. But before we get to that, what did you want to what did you want to bring up? Well, in addition to the hero worship, one other thing that his study of Alag and his his association with Une and Dome, uh, Doga gets him is 
he he more than anyone at the at at Noah sort of feels the weight of history seemingly um he uh, he learns that like he, the reason that his bloodline was um given was gifted the the royal allegan blood is that the after the disaster of course not everyone was dead allag was in ruins and the crystal tower was gone but there was one remaining member of the allegan royal family still alive and that was the princess selenia um and the the people of Alag were lost without the tower, right? For so long it had been a beacon of hope, and now it was just gone, uh, buried beneath the uh, the earth. Because I, I think we also forgot to mention, Amon did some time magic to seal it, uh, so that it would be kept in stasis. That's just sort of a crazy thing that happened that we don't have time to get into now. <laughs> but he did time. He he did time magic. Um, he's very powerful, but for some reason, his clone only does like stage tricks very weird weird anyway um so selenia sort of understands that eventually the tower will be needed again right the tower will will be uncovered one day and she gifts she much like Une and doga do she gifts her blood using elegant technology to graha her most like trusted the the man she trusts most in the world is what they say who was graha's like forefather and so that's how graha's line gets the royal blood and as a result what after the sacrifice of the clones uh graha sort of feels the weight of that mission like on his shoulders of the like this this wish made by a, a long dead princess a thousand years ago to an ancestor he never knew about. And as a result, he seals the tower because the clones are gone and he's the only one who can do it, but he's not going to seal it from the outside. He's going to seal it from the inside with him in it. Yes. And this is very important. He ends up doing a speech at the end here because you know, after you've managed to take care of this, the the Crystal Tower, and you've you've managed to seal off the world of darkness and all of this, now it's it's just going to come down to figuring out how to seal this tower off for good, so that it can't hurt anyone with its dangerous technology. But Graha is not satisfied with that. He feels the weight of this wish, a thousand thousand years of a wish left unanswered. This this burdensome need to make the crystal tower a beacon of hope for mankind again and he tells this to everyone as as you know you sort of figure out hey uh suddenly he's kicking everyone out of the tower and not telling on what's anyone what's going on we should probably figure out what's going on um and you know sid is like hey listen i get the idea and i get the sentiment but this is too dangerous we don't understand any of this technology we have to make sure that it can't be used for evil or misinterpreted and you know maybe someday we'll be able to make something like this again but but we can't like trust that we're able to handle it right now and Graz like you're right but by that point there's going to be no royal allegan blood left to even use it like the the dream will go unanswered because 
Graha is the last person who has the ability to do this. The gift that Une and Doga gave him, their sort of last vestiges of of blood power, it's an ephemeral gift, according to them. It's not going to last forever, not his whole lifetime, and his lifetime is going to be short anyway. Like, he's not going to live the hundreds and hundreds of years that would probably be required for society to get to the even close to the point where building the Crystal Tower or knowing how it operates would be a possibility. So he decides he's going to take a leaf out of Amon's book. He's going to use the immense energy of the Crystal Tower to put the whole thing back into time stasis. That way, when people finally figure out how to sort of be on that same level of technology to be able to use this stuff properly, they can knock on the door, get it open, wake Graha up, and they can use it to once again light the way forward for humanity. Um, And you get this really, like, emotional scene where, um, like, Biggs and Wedge are like, you know, just you wait, it'll just take us a couple of years and we'll be coming back for you, and oh my god, I'm gonna fucking cry. Wow. (laughs) I'm like, I don't even know, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I'm really (laughs) trying not to. So, yes, and, you you know, Sid and, and we haven't talked much about Rambrose, but I really like Rambrose. He's just a cool guy. I like that he has his Charlene Archon tattoo on his big bald head. I think that's very funny because um, everyone else just gets it on their neck or whatever. But no, he's like, put it, put it on my bald head, boy. Look at, <laughs> look at my bald head, boy. Like to slap that bald head, reblog to slap that bald head. Um, but you know, Sid and Rambrose, you know, Sid is find this very admirable, and he promises, like, yeah, we will, we will deliver this bright future to you. And then Graha turns to you. And he says, you know, I'm surely you of all people will be, you know, remembered by history. Oh, I want I want to get this quote right. I want to get I wrote down the whole quote. He turns to you and he says, I look forward to learning of your exploits and you warrior. I know history will remember you. No doubt your heroism will be the star by which I chart my course when I awake. And he closes the doors. And goes to sleep. For a very long time. This episode's going long, and it's going to go longer. So we're, yeah. I'm just going to... Well, well, there's, there's gonna... one more thing. There's one more thing. There's one more thing. There's one more thing. Oh, this right. Is, there this is, is important. Because... This is actually really important. Yes. Nero, Nero Tolskeva, uh, w- when they're doing their, like, post-World uh, of Darkness, like, roll call, Sid just goes, yeah, Nero left with me, but I don't know where he went. He just disappeared. Um, it's probably fine. Like, it doesn't seem like he's cares that much about, like, doing villain shit anymore. Yeah, and of course, we know why he really left. Like, he's like, oh, I have stuff to do. I want to forge my own path. He really left because he was unbelievably mortified by the fact that he was just saved by his ex-husband and everyone knows it. Yeah, he had to leave. He had to go. Gotta go. <laughs> we get one more button here at the end where we see Nero standing... And he's got that uh, that little elegant like wrist thing that he uses to sense energies and whatnot. And he, I do, you know, here's the thing, right? We all make fun of Nero for being such a dramatic little little bitch. There is a gen the the, the way he says like you know he, he says goodbye to Sid here. It is very genuine. I think the important thing about Nero, beyond all of the most divorced man in the world jokes, beyond all of the Vegeta jokes, beyond all of his general mannerisms 
there is a guy under there. There is a guy with a lot of feelings about stuff under there. Uh, it just so happens that he channels most of those feelings into making fucked up muscle tars that will blow up the world. Yes, he he is he is an individual that's got a lot of like weighty emotion. He's so dramatic, and it's because he's so full of like heart i think he is a passionate man he is a man of pure passion he is he really is he ultimately like the 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 wish to surpass sid defines him and, and he puts us all into that but he, ta- he he takes this this doodad and he just he, he says you know what i'm going to find my own way I'm I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do next, and I'm not going to follow any fucking readings. And he tosses that bitch into the void. He does, and he walks away. He declares it a new dawn for Nero Tolskeva, but as he walks away, uh, you, you hear you hear <laughs> just the faint little radio noises of it uh, going off in this chasm. So it looks like something else elegant is afoot. But yes, that is the end of the Crystal Tower raid series. Once again, very weird that it's required content, but you know, it's pretty good. I guess, you know, I guess they just wanted to get you used to doing Alliance raids. That's why it's required content. Surely, surely it is. And surely we're not going to talk for like a full fucking extra hour about it after this break. Let's, we're going to hustle through. uh, We're not going to do the detailed Patreon plugs. We're going to do, I'm going to tell you. Go to patreon.com slash crystalradioworks. We have all of our tiers described there. We say it at the end of every other episode. You know what they do. What does it go up Sunday? Uh, these go up Saturday. Uh, we do need to read. We do need to do our readout. We need to do our readout, but. We do. We have one. When this goes up, you have one more day. It's important. All patrons. We need you to vote. There's a tiebreaker on the May talk cycles poll and it is a tie that i never thought would happen really i um so who knows maybe it's been broken by them but if you haven't voted on that go check it out yeah what is what is the tie what is the tie between it's arcane and what it's arcane and gravity falls season one that's hilarious well make your make your choices two known. shows that are exactly the same <laughs> couldn't be any similar i mean they're both no, no, no. Gravity Falls isn't actually about dads. I was about to say they're both about dads, but it's Gravity Falls is about uncles. That's true. Very similar, but quite different at the same time. Let's, yeah, let me let me just crack open that Patreon ring, because of course, our, our, our $8 and $3 patrons, our beloved $8 and $3 patrons, get their names read out at the end of every episode, no matter how much longer it will be. Yes. Let me take a sip of water <laughs> so that I can properly thank our trusted companions and warriors of crystal argyle funk dan big challenges silva becky scott fairly vertigree rockadot mia berg tobu amitess gurgis sid vesper enrique obrobledo aruncio trisha montez imogen q aurora borealis sir sheeps a lot i beauregard kaylee louisa garrett johnson emma lynn Haley Moreland, Yusuf Gurch, Ashley, Mabel Mabel, Jennifer Jones, Jack O'Neuro, Michael Steinert, and TCO. Thank you very much for all your continued support. It means the world to us. And if you wouldn't mind, everybody, uh, why don't you give uh, some of our, our funny podcasts uh, 
a rating on, you know, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or, you know, wherever you can rate us at and are listening to us on. Juice that algorithm. Gotta juice that algorithm, baby. But um, uh, with that, if uh, if you're leaving us, if you, if you don't want to hear about spoilers, then uh, we, we hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll catch you next time. But if you want to talk about some goddamn spoilers, then we'll see you on the other side. fucking christ okay the crystal tower is one of the most important foundational parts of this game it is unbelievable how much content there is in this that is relevant Shadowbringers, and walker and post and walker all directly tie into the crystal tower yeah fundamentally like directly like fundamentally critical to the construction of like 60 percent of this game yeah i want to start with the most obvious part, okay? Uh-huh. So, I think... Here's the thing. It, I Like like I said, I like a lot of characters in this game. If someone pointed at me and said, tell me who your favorite character in Final Fantasy XIV is, it, it, it is basically a 50-50 shot. I would either say... It's, it, it's 65-35. 35% of the time, I would say, Alice. I love Alice. She's fantastic. The majority of the time, I am going to say Grahatia. Yeah, and I'm in exactly the same boat. I'm in exactly the same boat. I fucking adore this stupid cat boy. Here's a, it's funny. I'm watching someone. One of my mutuals is is playing through the Crystal Tower right now, and they find him quite annoying, which is understandable where he where they are now, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think he is helped by the AR localization style, the very like arch what ho old chap kind of vibes that everyone sort of has yeah yeah i definitely thought he was kind of annoying the first time we did this this too here's the thing here's a very here's the very interesting thing about rahatia and these because like obviously the foundational bits of his character are there his sort of goofiness and nerdiness his kind of self-image issues as he judges against the the those who've done great deeds and his and his like selfless uh his his kind of selfless dedication to a brighter future yes and and his immediate knee-jerk reaction to self-sacrifice he he loves doing that shit yeah so here but when you meet the crystal exarch in shadowbringers you meet a fundamentally very different person because that version of grahatia has been alive for like 800 years or something no it's it was only like 100 years so he, he's been around he's been around for like 130 years or something total i think and he has seen the death of his world he, he has seen the end of the world 
and live through it. He he is the only survive. You know, as far as he is aware, he's the only survivor of that timeline. And additionally, here's the important thing about his entire his entire every action, every moment in Shadowbringers up to uh like the very like the, past uh the innocence fight he is expecting to die he is doing everything he does in shadowbringers with the expectation that this will end with him dead he is going to sacrifice himself to tear the the sort of sin eater corruption the sin eater sickness out of the warrior of light and like teleport himself into the void that is what he's going to that is the plan and there's you know there's a lot i gratia we we we, our friend group has a joke about shadowbringers about how it's actually a dating a dating sim and you have three routes it is a dating sim which one of your shadow boyfriends are you taking yeah so there's there's three routes you've got bert he's 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 honorable he's reliable he's he's a he's a he's a great guy to be clear i love all three of them um bert emmett who's the bad boy but he's got like a tragic past and then there's chris who is like the the big soft nerd boy who loves you very much the thing about the crystal exarch and grahatia uh there's there i mean it's interesting right because this is a this is one of the most minor of minor characters for fucking eight years of this game Four years. It's four years in this game. Shadowbringers comes out in 2018. And up until that point, there is literally no indication at all that anything in the Crystal Tower is going to matter much. Right? Like, there's other allegations going to happen, but it's all separate. Omega is completely separate from anything that's going on in the Crystal Tower. But, like, as far as anyone else is concerned, Crystal Tower, done for. That, that Catboy is going to be sleeping in there forever. And then the Shadowbringers trailer comes out, and the Crystal Tower is on the first, which is not where it's supposed to be, generally. And there's a guy there who's partially made of rocks. And I mean, what do you what do you want to talk about with Grahatia? Because there's a obviously we'll talk a lot about him. There's so much to fucking hit with this. Okay, so first I want to go like, oh man. Like, I, I, I want to talk for a minute about the ending of the Crystal Tower here. Yes. Because it fucking... Ooh, they play the song. They play the they song and everything. The song. They do indeed play the song, which comes up at the end of Shadowbringers. His line about your 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 heroism being the stars by which he will chart his path literally true. Ooh. So here's the thing. One of the things I love about Gratia's arc, like I said, he was in the position of he 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 was the Crystal Exarch and he was expecting to die to be like a to to help the Warrior of Light save the day. He was not expecting to be there by the end. Um, he spends his entire time in the Doom timeline, like hearing about one of one of the first moments in was it one of the first ones? It's, it's, it was one of the first ones that really, really got me in uh, in Shadowbringers was the bit in the ocular where you have the echo visions of like just where you just see everyone else in the ruined future talking about the warrior of light to to grahatia 
where they talk where like the the warrior of light has become this enduring beacon of hope right uh in in this ruined world and he does boy how does he chart that course based on that he does your exploits literally your exploits are fundamental to a lot of the fucking developments they had to make to 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 fucking temporal transport the entire crystal tower to the first right like they had to go into a Ishgard that is literally under siege and is being exploded from all sides to get the only copy that exists of Grandpa Dracula's memoirs. Like, you had to grab the- he had to grab that fucking book. And so, think about this. So he always- he is, like, selfless to a fault, much like one of our other favorite characters, Adora. Um, he is- like you said, he's always ready to sacrifice himself, especially in Shadowbringers. Now- the thing is, um, he spends a hundred years, close to, on the first. During that time, he becomes the most beloved man in the world. Yeah, he does do the thing that he set out to do, right? He literally does make the Crystal Tower a beacon of hope for mankind. He appears just as the the world of the first has functionally ended the an apocalypse has taken place probably 70 to 85 percent of the surface of this planet is entirely unusable wasteland that kills you if you go in it all that's left is a most of one continent and this continent is absolutely fucking inundated with monsters that uh, infect you with a disease that turns you into more monsters. And this is a, this is a world that was poised to fall to despair. And at the and right then, two very important things happen. One, uh, a funny lady with blonde hair stops the big wave of light before it takes over that continent. Um, we'll get to her at some point. Don't worry about it. But the other very significant thing that happens is that completely out of nowhere, a big blue crystal fucking voips into existence and out pops this funny little guy. And he directs these people, these these bands of of desperate and 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 starving refugees and bands them together into a community of people who stand against the very like despair and and depression that persists in in the ruins of this world he he builds a city that stands in stark defiance to the 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 conditions that they find themselves in and basically everybody loves him unconditionally for it they, they like he refuses to be king so they just give him the title of crystal exarch because he didn't want to be king and he's like not really technically in charge of anything but they all respect him immensely and so they kind of keep him in the loop of things but like the point is that the crystal exarch became is the hero of the first he, the warrior of darkness sure saved the day but like ultimately Right alongside the Warrior of Darkness is going to be the, mentioned the Crystal Exarch, um, and I mean I don't I just the 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 sort of into his arc of where he goes from this sort of self-sacrificing 
like guys who's who's perfectly content to be a footnote in someone else's story so long as he gets to play a part right um and he goes from that to being one of the scions of the seventh dawn and refounding the students of Valdezian and doing all sorts of things because he I, it's it's i can't really put it into detailed words i just love his arc and what i think one of the things i really love uh one of the things that always comes to my mind whenever i think about him is his portion of ultima thule yeah uh, with the omicrons so the thing about gratia that i find really interesting is that he more than anyone else any other character in this whole game must have a completely unique perspective on the self because he is the amalgamation of functionally two different people with two different lived experiences in one body and he knows what it's like to completely alter your physical form and i love the speech he gives to the omicron like computer where he talks about how like there is no immutable self that can be destroyed by alteration like it, it like you he he does not buy in one of the reasons i like the omicron uh segment so much because it would be easy to say yes these people have killed their souls by turning into robots but gra rejects that idea entirely he's like well no there's like turning into wires and data and code sure it, it's different you're different now but that doesn't make you any less of a person that doesn't make you any less of who you were any more than like waking up with a completely new set of skin cells or being reborn in the great flow of life like it's you're different every day it's true it's true and that's a very important thing for his his character i feel like he it takes him a little bit i think to come to terms with that for himself and i think that's why his his speech in thule ends up being something that hits really well is because he is a a a character that grapples quite heavily with his his own self-image and his own perspective of the self like you'll notice in the Crystal Tower raids itself. Uh, towards the end, he sort of self-deprecates and, and puts down his contributions really heavily. And he does the same thing in Shadowbringers itself. He feels like his he plays a bit part in the story. He's here to be the sacrifice that saves the warrior, the real hero. You know, he is simply here to play his role and let the 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 spotlight shine on the real hero of the hour. And as time goes on, he is proven it is proven to him again and again that he is just as worthy of that hero title as the people he admires. That that his like that his courage and his uh, dedication to his ideals and his actions are just as heroic as the warrior of lights and. These these are, I think, the foundational points that that lead him to be able to talk to the Omicrons about like 
why it is that it matters that they that they are still people that that despite all of their changes and despite all the things that they've done and things that they didn't do that they are still worth something that they are still worth trying to continue changing to continue growing that you know simply allowing yourself to to stagnate uh into into oblivion because you feel like you've lost your way to 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 give up entirely is more of a betrayal to the self than they feel that their change was and i think that's like i i think that's a really relevant thing for for him as a character often of course you know your 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 twitter jokes or art or whatever will we'll often reduce graha to like the the, the cute fanboy right there, there is a very large streak of fanboyism through that boy. I will not, I will not deny. Um, but I think that he grows beyond being the the dorky fanboy guy. And I, I don't think there's any character who more consistently makes me cry like a baby than Grahatia. Oh, big time. Every, I swear to God, literally talking about this at all, like, I, I feel like I'm I'm trying to, to, to pull back on the reins because, like, this shit makes me emotional. This shit makes me really emotional. Like, oh, God, these, like, the, Iron, the Ironworks boys and Graha are, like, they, they get me every time. They really do. I think a lot about you know, the, the one of the few non-voice cutscenes that make me cry is the one right before the seed of sacrifice where he's telling lena like what sh- what she means to him oh that gets me oh god Ooh, that one gets me too oh god you know what really gets me okay so this is this is only this is related to to Grahab. This is this is veering a little bit into into a tangent here, going off about the Ironworks boys. But I gotta I gotta talk about them a little bit because like oh my god, like the the bit at the end here where they're like you know the Biggs and Wedge like vow that they're gonna uh, they're gonna catch up to Ally before you know it, we're gonna come back for you, buddy. And like, and they do, and but it takes you know it takes them a while. It takes them, uh, it, t- it takes them a bit. It takes them about like a dozen generations of bigs and wedges. Like it's it's at the end of the twinning, you get a oh Jesus. You good? <laughs> no. Uh, at the end of the twinning, which is the best dungeon in this entire game, do not fucking at me. That's true. There is uh, there's a message that got left behind. Wow, you're really it's really getting your ass. <laughs> you're really feeling the effect. It's like every time it really does. It gets me. Uh, there's a message left behind from from Biggs the the fifth, I think, or Biggs the seventh, or something. And it's just like you know they're they're leaving behind like a like a time capsule. They're they're leaving it behind uh, for for Graha when he wakes up because they um. It's it's important to note that when they go into the Crystal Tower in the Doom timeline, in the in the eighth Astro Era timeline, or the eighth Umbro Era timeline rather, they um they can't actually wake Graha up. Uh, they can they can still use the tower, like him being there allows them to use it, uh, but they can't wake him up or anything like that. Um, or at least not um, 
not entirely. Uh, I don't know. They, they they leave they leave a message when when the the tower is is going to like actually do its big its its big teleporting thing about you know all all the all the hard work they did and and trying to leave a message for the future. Like you know they're they're going if if this succeeds then the entire eighth umbral era timeline will theoretically stop existing and they wanted to to leave uh leave a message in a bottle for for the people who get to come after them and i don't know that shit <sighs> there's just such a like uh there's such an energy to the um the storyline here of ah oh, jesus christ it's one, of, it's one of those things where often the thing that so, some people just don't understand about certainly being like an activist or being like a revolutionary, right? Is And then something that most, most of them understand. The thing you are fighting to do will almost certainly never come to pass in your lifetime. And that's just a fact that a lot of anyone who's doing that sort of work has to kind of accept, right? Where you are truly like digging the foundations for a better future and that's all that the the ironworks of the eighth umbral era did and all that grahatia did which is like he's he's like the the tower will once again become a beacon of hope for humanity and it did multiple times over it did it say it saved the world like three separate times how about we go from one to another subject, which will certainly not have any uh, strong emotions tied to him. How about we talk about Amon? Oh, Christ. Yeah. Oh, no God. one will cry over that. Um, <sighs> so, so I want to say right now. Uh, if you are one of those people who say Hermes is the worst, is like the guy whose whose fault everything is, and he's the worst guy of all time, I I will personally kill you. Oh yeah, no no no! Like Hermes is great. Hermes is awesome. He's he's honestly one of the best characters to come out of End Walker. God, that boy needs some fucking antidepressants though. Get this get this guy some SSRIs. So the thing that struck me, right? We already have zandy's uh philosophy here i thought that was that was an addition in uh in endwalker that little that little bit when we do get more of it in endwalker we get a different like look at it however already his the thing about him is that like he has seen the other side he has seen it just it just like completely destroyed him it just gutted him into he's hollow now and that uh, that sort of hollowness struck a chord with Amon because the thing about Amon, of course, that he is he is Fandaniel, he is the reincarnation of Hermes, and it's also important to note that Amon is not Hermes either, right? There's there's a there's an important one of the one of the big things about the way that souls and rebirth works in the world of final fantasy 14 it's not it is it is it is like the soul is there the soul is the same but that does not mean you are the same person that does not mean you even much resemble that person right you are a new person the reincarnated assians the sundered assians are an interesting bunch because ultimately 
they are inheritors of the will and memories of someone who's long dead. And what I find most interesting about Amon and his arc is the sheer alienation he feels from that. Like you would think you are, you were revealed to be the reincarnation of, of like a, one of the world's greatest fucking like sorcerers. You're one of the convocation of, of 13. You, you were, you're an ancient, you're an architect of, of life and you learn that and you gain all these memories. And it's just like, what the fuck do I do with any of this? I'm not, I'm not that guy. I, this doesn't fix the hollowness. This doesn't fix the, the, the feeling of just being alone in this world. It just makes it worse. And so he sees Hermes's memories. He sees the like restored, uh, the, the restored Kairos wiped memories of, of Medion's message and in the, in the, in the incoming apocalypse. And he decides much like Zandi, fuck it. Like, who cares? Who gives a shit anymore? And Amon is interesting because he, the you get a sense in Endwalker, you 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 get the flashback because he he does have some of Hermes's best like impulses, right? He does have his his fascination and care for life at the start of things. It just so happens that he was reborn into the waning days of the Allegan Empire, where all of the stupid fucking aristocrats just wanted him to clone cool new monsters for them to kill. Yeah, and he, like like Hermes, he is very much like, he has the good intentions at heart. Like, he starts to try and clone and reconfigure these, like, ancient heroes because he wants them to, like, actually fix things. But... Similarly, because he is Hermes, he doesn't think these things through very much. Um, bear in mind, Hermes, of course, is the one who famously uh, built a creature to go ask the other sentient races in the galaxy what they think the meaning of life is, um, and did not consider for one second what if there isn't anything out there. Yeah. Hermes and my extension Amon, similar to Nero Tolskiva, actually, are very passionate Granted, that passion is channeled very differently, but they, Amon and Hermes loved life. Not, not in the sense of they were, they had a, the, the, the zest for life or whatever, but they, they found great value in life, right? More value than anyone else in their respective worlds saw much at all. And I think, I think it's, it's easy to see fan daniel slash amon as as you know he he is he is the funny joker man let us be clear he is the funny joker man he does say he wants to murder suicide the whole world and that's a very that's a very funny line when he says it but one of the things about him and one of the reasons one of my when i when i was playing through in walker i was like how are they gonna do what's what's going on with xenos how are they gonna do xenos and when the my my doubts were assuaged literally the first cutscene he shows up in because the first cutscene Zeno shows up in is a scene where he and Fandaniel are talking and not about like the big plan or the warrior of light or whatever really and they don't have the, they, they, there's not that sort of theatrics that their conversations usually come with right they're just talking and what struck me is their mutual failure to form any kind of connection between each other. 
their 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 mutual failure to be able to make human connections at all really yes like xenos we've talked about a lot what his deal is fandaniel like he is so far down this path that ultimately he could not really care less about what xenos thinks and so you because the, they they are the only two people in the world who could really ever truly understand each other and they don't really have much interest in doing so at all xenos considers fandaniel sort of a useful annoyance at best and and fandaniel considers xenos a pawn but at the same time there is i think there is like that scene gestures at a they they want there's an instinct for connection there the the fact that they just talk about normal shit during that scene was the thing that was so striking because like these these are characters that do not talk about normal things no they don't but there but there is that instinct to connect with each other they're just fundamentally not equipped to be able to do it and the last thing with Amon is of course when you encounter him in the atioscope where the memories are once again fully completed but he, at the end he he has been so certain that there is no answer right that the answer is null. Um, he has spent his entire immortal life working towards this goal of utter annihilation with that with that idea in mind. And here at the, at the very end, he begins to question it. He begins to like wonder again of like, is it true? And one of my favorite lines in the whole, one of my favorite dialogue choices in the whole game, right before. Oh, I was about, I was about to say. Right before it gets pulled down by that stupid fucking twink, um, is you can tell, you know, when he's asking if, is that really the answer to the question? Is this, is this really the answer he was searching for? You can say, next time we'll find the answer together. Fuck. <laughs> Uh... And ultimately, the thing that pulls Medion out of her spiral, right, is the memory of Hermes gift wanting to gift her a flower. Uh, it's that it's that beautiful that beautiful kernel of 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 human connection that that pulls you out of uh, the the spiral of despair. If that's if that's if there's one thing you can take away from i think the entire back half of this entire video game is that that is that point that even the tiniest kernel of human connection is what is required to to pull you out of despair and push you on a path towards a brighter future with and i mean to talk a little bit more about graha right because he was never is far gone as Amon or Medion or any of those other people, right? Of course. But he was he was still do- leading down a path of complete self-destruction. Um, and once again, a line that always comes to mind when he's talking about Omicron right before he goes is his, his line about how, like, I want to tell you a story about a man who, who saw his wildest dreams realized and, and then woke up and, 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 lived, and lived that life, right? Where... He has wanted this for so long. He he has spent his life dreaming of being the hero, of, of being written about in stories. And now he has all his friends. He's got... Whenever Graha starts asking you for a promise, I immediately start crying. Because I know what's about to happen. He loves to do that. He loves asking about promises. And 
he 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 is like i don't know he is just like a, a wonderful little a little wonderful little character who's just like and it's it's not like his arc stops after that he's he is still fighting for the brighter future that he envisioned he does these ins- this insane shit to make sure that like when the when one of the when the tower uh when when the the tower of zot collapses in endwalker he creates this fucking huge levitation spell to save literally everyone um and he's kind of and he's and he fucking beats himself up over the fact that it was a little bit weaker than he wanted it to be yeah he's he is so self-critical and he is so he he is a character who can so easily fall into this into this into the brain trap of blaming himself for every tiny thing that goes wrong and seeing himself as expendable and as a secondary character in the story and what i love so dearly about his arc is that what pulls him out of that is his connection is his connection to you is his connection to the scions is his connection to the people who he's helped and all of that sort of pulls him out of those mindsets every time like it's it's so funny uh, so many times in Endwalker, and uh, even a little bit in, in Post Shadowbringers, um, Alice is just like, you son of a bitch, I swear to God, if you say you're about to want to sacri- sacrifice yourself again, I'm going to punch your lights out. Like, it's really beautiful. That, the, uh, the, the, the gut punch call, like, through line of that is after he gives himself up at Ultima Thule, she says... Why can't you stay with us until the end just once? Fuck. Yeah. Oh, God. You forgot about that, didn't you? Uh... Gratia. I, he, will, he will surely continue to be very involved in the story. I mean, he's a scion. I also just want to shout out another very good scene with him right at the end of Shadowbringers. Because I choose the right dialogue choices for everything oh yeah it's very important i choose the ones that make the i choose the one that makes the characters cry <laughs> but at the end of Shadowbringers, i chose it's good to, it's uh, it's good to see you awake Krahati. oh and you can make him cry and then you cry and i cry and fuck oh god i well just one of the one of the small things i love about that i think other dialogue choices result in it too but one of the really good things i like about that is when everyone is walking off thanker just walks up and wraps his shoulder around him it's like it's just it's just a very nice moment of camaraderie because like it's not even it's not even like he and Thangard have talked that much throughout Shadowbringers really but like I don't know he's a fucking bro now he is oh god I gotta talk about this though oh god because you're making me think about the parallels so there's parallels between oh fuck this isn't gonna be relevant for a long time but I gotta talk about it because now you're making me thinking about it uh there's very heavy parallels between Gratia and Vana so fuck. <laughs> <sighs> yeah you're right okay take us away okay there is so vanaz heidelin you, you know this you've played the game if you're listening to this so um there's the bit in the actual trial when you fight heidelin you you, you fight her she's expended all of her life force basically uh she is dissipating and all this stuff and at the very last minute like as she is like getting ready to dissolve forever you can uh, like okay the mantle of responsibility and the mantle of 
circumstance sort of surrounds both of these characters. Gratia becomes the Crystal Exarch. He gets a title bestowed upon him. He sort of relinquishes his previous identity almost entirely, uh, cloaks his face. No one's allowed to actually see what he looks like. Uh, he is assumed a faceless, nameless persona so that he can better serve the people that rely on him. He doesn't want people to become attached to him necessarily. He wants to be a secondary figure, a figure who is who who supports the true heroes and enables them to to reach the heights that they need to get to in order to save the day. And Vana takes a very similar tack, right? Heidelin is in many ways a faceless and nameless entity. She deliberately hides behind the Mother Crystal when contacting uh, anyone who is a warrior of light or anyone that she wants to, to, to talk to. Which, can I say, is one of the funniest images, mental images of all time. It's so fucking funny. She's just hiding behind a big rock. Do, do not look behind the curtain ass shit. Um... And, and this mantle of being a functionally god and trying to guide the people in the direction that, that is, is best. And she has to, she has to witness, similar to Graha, they, they're very old. They, they have to witness people fall down over and over and over again. And as you sort of relinquish your sort of personhood to the persona, as you sort of pull yourself back and, and tamp it down and, and try to put all of that as far behind you as possible so you can better embody your role, the less and less you, you give to yourself, the less importance you place on, on yourself or your feelings, and you become very detached from it, you become very dissociated from it. It makes it very easy to simply self-sacrifice because you do not really see yourself as an individual anymore. And Graha has to learn to stop doing that. And a big part of that, I think, a, a, a big moment is when you do call him by name. He hasn't heard his name in an unbelievably long time. Hundred, uh, more than a hundred years, he hasn't heard his name. And it's emotional. It brings a lot back to him that he, that he thought he lost. And that he, he deliberately kind of lost in order to fulfill his role. Vanada's the same thing. Because at the very end of her trial... Just as she's about to dissipate forever, you get the opportunity... Oh, Jesus, fuck. Mm -hmm. uh, you get the opportunity to to call her by her real name again. Yeah, I'm already crying, Jesus Christ. <sighs> and guess what? She starts crying, and I start crying. You don't need to start crying, you're already crying. Um, And it's worth noting that obviously, like... But, Gratia working towards a brighter future by dooming his home, right? W what he believes to be. As it turns out, that splinter timeline continues to exist. And they're doing pretty well, from my understanding. They're doing pretty good. But he believes that he is dooming his timeline 
by by fixing this, right? Like he he believes that the world that he knew, all of all of the all of the people that he knew, uh, will be gone after after the events of Shatterbringers. Similarly, Vina Vina loves people more than basically anything, like anything ever in existence. She has similar to Hermes, she has this deep abiding love of life. And so to sunder the world in such a way that floods it with suffering to save them from the wrath of of Meteon is in her eyes something completely unforgivable. She will never forgive herself for what she has done. Um, no matter what comes of it, no matter what cause it was for, the scale of her crimes go is like beyond reckoning in her eyes. Um, but at her core, Heidelin will put on the the godly speak. Heidelin will will talk like the the goddess she has been considered for a thousand thousand years but ultimately it's it's still just fina just like graha told the omicrons it doesn't matter what you do or how much you change uh fundamentally what makes you yourself is still somewhere in there and you just have to find it each new day it's true it's true and you know they both uh they 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 have such beautiful parallels to each other i think that that it's it hits really hard it hits really hard it's just this vana vana's position is in many ways what grahas would have been if he didn't have the friends there to to help vana had to do all of this on her own she didn't have anybody even even you her her friend that she made uh at sort of the end of history you you left too you had to leave you had to go back to your own time and she she had to do this all on her own hermes and hades they they don't remember any of it and she has to she has to do this all by herself basically she had a little help here and there but for the most part she had to shoulder this burden entirely on her own and it's this uh honestly kind of dark mirror into uh into the kind of life that graha would have had to lead if he had stayed as this this crystal exarch persona right up until the very end right up until his own sacrifice let's talk about dark mirrors we can talk about the crystal exarch and emmet selk as well but a lot oh yes we could be here for hours if we talk about that god we, we could like i will i will suffice to say that the parallel is very very clear you have you have the crystal exarch dooming his time to save a future he will never know and emmet selk clinging to a past he has never forgotten and dooming every future to make sure that it that the past uh comes back something a a past that he is one of the only one the only the only one who truly remembers it actually because at this point lahabre is dead and elitibus's true nature reveals that ultimately though he is unsundered his memory as this sort of construct is unreliable his his memory is fading as time goes on yes emmet selk is the only one 
who believes he truly remembers the world. And that burden is what defines him. And of course, the the, the best moment in Walker is when he reappears at the end and he's like immediately fucking, I can't believe it. I can't fucking believe I knew the whole time and I fucking forgot. It's so fucking funny. He's just like, I cannot, I cannot believe your Vinaz probably fucking laughing at me at this point like oh haha ha, oh you forgot didn't you oh like it's it's so funny and oh, i love the ancients crew i know that like um i know that elpis and that whole segment can be a little bit divisive but i think i think that whole segment is amazing i i love the ancients a lot they're wonderful i i love that story it's just it's good. This game's good. And briefly to tag it on, the the thing that relates to the 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 post Endwalker stuff is that we Mirror City is mentioned. That's basically it. Uh, this the the setup for the the the, the like voyage into the void in post Endwalker is is set up here where Freetra's sister fought back against the clouds incursion uh, the first time it happened and was trapped in the void. So yeah, all, all that set up, uh, and as well as other stuff about like the 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 warring triad and other stuff about Alag using primals as power sources, right? It's all there. It's all there. It's all there. But we have boy howdy, it's been it went about as long as I would have thought, and honestly, we still didn't cover everything. No, we didn't. We even we didn't even really go that deep into like the Ironworks boys. We didn't we didn't talk about the fact that the fact that they oh my god okay i do want to talk we about this a little bit we can't i we have to just a little bit just a little just a little bit like okay they it is like the the crystal tower and and sid's entire thing right sid's entire thing being freedom through technology and trying to make sure that the world is is he leaves the world a better place than what he than what he found it. And part of his philosophy, and part of the philosophy that makes up the entire foundation of the Ironworks, is that you can't just use the relics of the past um, and and expect that to work out because it's technology is tools tools define paths, right? And you can take more than one path to get to an end. Um, there isn't like one, this isn't like, you know, Civilization Five. There isn't a single tech tree that goes in a, in a linear direction. Like, technology is a branching thing, and it's based on priorities and culture. You know, what do you prioritize? What things do you want to build tools for, and what do you want those tools to do? And, and you can reach very different conclusions based on those things. And, and Sid's philosophy is that he believes that you need to make sure that you are aware of all of those things you are putting into your toolmaking, that you know what culture and ideas are at the foundations of what you're building. Because if you don't, if you don't know that, and you start to replicate the ideas of other people, then you are unwittingly replicating their ideology, and you're unwittingly replicating their mistakes. So... To that end, when they have to, when they are facing a situation where the entire world is dying from the super hyper mega plague, and they need to basically go back in time to make sure that doesn't happen because, you know, like 80% of all life on the planet died, um, they end up 
not they, they draw from the past out of necessity but also because that is the the fastest way to get where they want to they, they want to go right like they but they draw on it in a specific way it's not like they're just replicating technology specifically they're learning how it functions like they're learning how it is that omega was capable of traversing the uh the rift you know they're learning you know why is it that alexander is able to control time why does the crystal tower store all this energy how does it use that energy and where does it all go you know, why is it that Amon was able to stop time in the Crystal Tower? They learn all of these things through trial and error and experimentation. And they build... They, they don't just replicate the Allegan technology that built the Crystal Tower, which is what they originally set out to do. They wanted to get to a level where they could compare themselves to Allegan, at least enough to get their friend back out of the tower, but in the end, they don't just meet that expectation, they shatter that expectation. The Eighth Umbral Era, when it's all said and done, reaches a peak of technology and understanding that is leagues beyond what the Allegans were even capable of. And you know, and that's that's through the the, the hard work, ingenuity, and like enduring hope and ideals of a bunch of people banding together at the end of the world. And Jesus Christ, it's getting me again. They, they built Alexander. They built a new Alexander. They built their funny boy. They built a tycoon. And the thing you have to remember about Alexander is that it's a, it is a machine, but it's also a primal. So, like, ultimately, there's a few steps it's skipped in engineering. But they just built, they just built one. Yeah, they built one. They, they didn't... Like, there there wasn't, to my understanding, there's not, like, a magical component to this. They just straight built a working, actual, mechanical, full machine Alexander, which is, like, that's pretty impressive. And, oh, God, and it's just, it's just so much of the, like, the, the, the hopeful, like, nature of the story is, is rooted here in the Crystal Tower, and... Like, it, it really, really does end up becoming, like, this beacon of hope for people to rally around. A, a symbol and a place from which everyone is able to pull their best selves together and build a better future. And with that, I think it's time we finally take our leave from the Crystal Tower for now. Oh, for now. We'll be back back plenty of times but that'll be another day another world even indeed until then i have been one of your hosts nero and i've been the other host jane and we'll see you somewhere out there in the fields of eorzea <laughs>